My brother Roger Salter is a, is a fixture as well among us. Our next two speakers, Brother Hunter as well as Brother Salter, have been with us many times. Roger is pastor at St. Matthew's Anglican Church. And uh, if you would like to uh, read some of the blogs he does, uh, which are excellent, uh, you can look him up uh, under Roger Salter, S-A-L-T-E-R, and Living Oracles. And uh, you can read some of the writings there. But we are delighted that he is among us once again. So Brother Roger, if you would come. I might a little later on just resort to this to lean on. I assure you it's, it's not Aaron's rod. Um, it's something of later date, but it's very helpful. You know, when you concentrate on any portion of Holy Scripture and you have some sense of the fact that you are reading the divine word and not just the word of man, you wonder how you can possibly encompass within your mind the content of that word. Maybe a verse, a chapter, or a larger portion but there's no way in which we can wrap our minds around the Word of God in some complete way. Every time you peruse a portion of God's Word, however familiar you are with it, you find an immense variety of truth that you never ever expected would be contained within the literature that you're reading. The Divine Word authenticates itself. And then when you are called upon to expound a passage of Scripture, you think, how can I possibly do so? This word is unfathomable. It is so precious. It deserves such reverence and pondering and comprehension of which one is not capable. And so the Holy Spirit is vital for us all as we read the Word of God, to illuminate it before us and to do so again and again until these words come to the very center of our being as the substance of our life and through the memory of these words, Psalm 119, they become a part of us and the direct us. But that is something that is a supernatural work of God. But I hope we can come this morning in spite of the inadequacy of human attempts and human language and explanation to just grasp something of the enormous importance and value of the passage that Mark read to us. So we attempt to do that as we consider Christ, the better tabernacle, and we're looking at contrasting tabernacles because contrast emphasizes the major point to be made. I feel, and I'm going slightly off track here and I must stop myself, I feel the Old Testament is only coming into its own now that we have the explanation and see its importance in the new. I've been in churches in England where 
The Old Testament was just set aside as something passé and unimportant and irrelevant. I find it more and more gripping and relevant because in it you see the picture, the portrait, in lots of cameos of the coming Messiah of God. And you see, Peter tells us that the Old Testament was inspired by the Spirit of Christ. So I hope you won't mind me saying that the whole of the Bible is autobiographical. It's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us in different dispensations of his covenant of grace. So we look at Christ, the better tabernacle, and we consider a contrast between these tabernacles, and may God help us to derive some wonderful, blissful uh, comprehension of the marvelous truth that he reveals to us. The first tabernacle, it's the forerunner to close meeting with God. The enjoyment of his nearness. Now, if I have the time, I just want to speak slowly and meditatively. But if time is running out, I'll speed up. But I think these things are worth absorbing in a leisurely way. We live in such a fast period of time. So many things rush through our lives and we scarcely notice them or comprehend them. And I think in one sense, as Christians, we are to, as much as is possible, slow life down and live it lingeringly before the presence of God with our ears attuned to him. Because the word will block out, the world will block out his voice if it can, and it succeeds so often. But here is an invitation to us, you and me, to meet with God in the closest possible way that human beings in this fallen world can do. So the emphasis is on the enjoyment of divine nearness and we look first of all at the strict terms for approaching the Lord because they are strict. One of the great Puritans of that era was told he was too precise and he says, ah, but I serve a precise God. That is the first thing that convicts us of our inadequacy and sinfulness before him. It's John Preston, by the way. The careful procedures in acknowledgement of his incomparable majesty are what are relayed to us through this passage. And our meanness and obnoxiousness as sinners, as miscreants, not a popular self realization in our time when you look at books of self-improvement and putting self to the center of life the trend of our culture is entirely wrong and we are counter-cultural not because we're awkward or because we're critical or harsh but we know as John tells us that the world is at enmity with God and by God's permission is governed by the prince of this world, Satan himself. And I would go so far as to say 
that the unregenerate, apart from the common grace of God, are entirely under his thrall and are directed by his compulsion. There would be much more evil if God were not restraining Satan and restraining restraining his servants. I love it when John Newton says, when we get to heaven and we have hindsight, we'll be able to see the number of times that God delivered us from the world's hatred. Not only those wonderful deliverances from accident or misfortune, but we don't know how much our life as Christians creates an enmity in the people among whom we live. Because we prick their conscience, not because of our goodness or holiness, but because of the name we bear and represent. So the earthly tabernacle is beautifully rich with copies, time to move on quickly, sorry, of the solid benefits and enduring relationship with the Almighty that Messiah would bring. A case of shadows before substance or of the first draft, as it were, of the Lord's glorious plan of salvation. The way to full communion with God yet to come in glorious reality and clarity through our precious Redeemer. The preparation for direct, unhindered access to God is outlined in this passage. It's an illustration, an education, concerning the wise and ingenious provision of God for our meeting with Him and permanent intimacy with Him. You know how pointless and futile life seems without God. Has the world ever been so desperate? I have to stop expatiating and just move on. The first tabernacle sets the scene by describing the awe-inspiring loftiness and inherent holiness of the Lord as against our reprehensible status as filthy, maggoty, despicable sinners. How many of us are like Job who want to say, I am a worm before God? When you know yourself, you think you'd rather be a worm. How offensive we are to the Lord. Our obstacle to our knowing and enjoying God is our inborn depravity and ever-active rebellion of heart and hostility toward him. The mosaic tent of meeting reveals all the incredible and necessary means of reconciliation that God has established for our return to his favor and fellowship. It discloses the way the wretchedly unholy can enter the holy of holies and commune with our most holy Lord in safety and sweet togetherness. The sheer bliss of being with him and bathing ecstatically in his divine presence. All fear and unworthiness annihilated. The first tabernacle details the amazing design of the Lord in giving a pathway to himself 
that satisfies his purity and deals with our contemptible pollution and utter vileness. Is this the message we hear from the church today? Oh no, it's too hard, isn't it? What the earthly tabernacle teaches us is the gravity with which we are to consider our relationship with God according to our fallen nature. The matter of sin, its effects and consequences, is a serious business to be assessed with solemnity and sobriety. It alienates us from God, endangers us before his just and righteous wrath, convicts us of the destruction of the pure humanity he bestowed upon us at our creation. We are evil in ourselves and spoilers of the dignity he gave us as his image bearers. There was only one man who was truly human, Jesus the God-man. Our corruption and baseness is a crime against our beneficent maker, and our thoroughgoing pollution bars us from his presence, forfeits his approval, and exposes us to his fiercest judgment. Our case left to ourselves is helpless and hopeless. The first tabernacle alerts us to our serious and perilous plight in our aversion to and disobedient separation from God. We cannot afford to be blithely casual with reference to him. Yet as a race, we coolly trespass over and abuse every good thing he has laid before us in his supreme goodness and generosity. The first tabernacle dramatically emphasizes our complete disqualification for acceptance by him and our insuperable ill-desert before him. We are castaways, deservedly due for his entire abandonment of us. And just a quick remark, that is the essence of hell, and that is what Jesus went through himself, the abandonment of the Father. What a dark, desolate experience our Savior endured on our behalf. But the first tabernacle that counsels caution before God and the reverence of his person also reveals the goodness and compassion of his nature. Our triune Lord is willing to retrieve and receive us back to himself by a method extremely gracious and costly to himself. Father, Son, and Spirit have agreed a plan of rescue, an operation of deliverance that will remove the misery of existence here and our doom for eternity. The Lord gives his people a foretaste of the restoration to come through his promise of a saviour. Jesus is that promise. The plan of salvation has to be skillfully devised and fabricated, constructed with utmost wisdom, wisdom only to be found in God, wisdom that bewilders us as we trace the course of his rescue mission for the world. Like the author of Hebrews, we have limited time to discuss these things in detail now.
But there are features of the first tabernacle that with our privilege of hindsight magnify the saving mercy and infinite compassion of our Lord Jesus, ultimately brought to the fore on Calvary's hill. The cross, horrid and cruel, is the masterpiece of God's reversal of evil. Its empire, subjugation of humanity, all the ills and tragedy that ensue from evil's existence. A massive cleansing of the cosmos, planet Earth, and human heart hearts takes place in the death and resurrection of beautiful Prince Emmanuel. God with us. God with us to put creation right and make it better than ever before. The Ark of the Covenant points to splendid truths that are worth profound pondering. Within that ark were the tables of the law that declare God's righteous character and which outline our calling to reflect his likeness, but which now, due to our revolt against heaven, sadly point to our guilt and inability to want anything of God or make peace with God even at his bidding. We are too far gone in our sin and enmity, but on the lid of the ark we find the mercy seat, the place of divinely wrought propitiation. That's what the mercy seat was called, the lid of the tabernacle, the propitiation, putting us right with God and in his favor. And that's where the invisible God delights to sit between the cherubim, blessing his people with atonement for our wickedness and forgiveness of our treachery, an atonement we would, left to ourselves, neither conceive nor achieve. The law as our accuser is covered by the divine preference of pity for us and kindness toward our horrid criminality. Is that a thought worth rolling under our tongue, as Spurgeon would say? Not in any way to criticize or downgrade the law, but to say the law and its beauty, which we have offended beyond hope, is covered now by the lid that hides its accusations and speaks to us of mercy. We're hugely encouraged by the sentiment of Thomas Cranmer's eloquent prayer. Lord God, you who show your almighty power most of all in showing mercy and pity. The God of omnipotent power, judgment is his strange work, his second work. And to put it in human terms, with reference to almighty God and his schedule, he delays. He delays because it is not in his nature to destroy even that which is humanly evil. The evil, yes, but not the perpetrators. But in our determination to reject God, there is no alternative. I hope I haven't put that badly, but the fact is that it shows that God's preference is for mercy and peace with mankind. That's the loveliness of the Lord Jesus. 
in the old order and in human ill desert, a priesthood been established to communicate with God on man's behalf and to communicate the message of divine mercy to his chosen ones. Atonement, oneness with God, is secured through shed blood of goats and bulls symbolically to intimate that our recovery to God is achieved through substitutionary sacrifice. A ritual process of ceremonial significance, insufficient in the old, old tabernacle to reunite God and man in mutual purity, but indicative of the need of something better than external regulations of proper decorum before the Lord. Oh, how much of our religion is external merely. Oh, God, make it real. Make it real. The processes of the tabernacle and the ministrations of the priesthood were so awesome and steeped in reverence that the people for whom the priesthood acted were not present themselves. They were represented before God by a chosen class, and any approach to God was not to be cheapened in a general way. Sinful man was not entitled to draw near to God by any created means whatsoever, material or mental. Man is destitute of any avenue of return to his maker and governor. See, the only three words we are called upon and entitled to express to God, our Lord, have mercy. There's no negotiation with him apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The processes of the tabernacle, well, we've just looked at them, and we still are. Access to God would have to be granted by a divine path that reached out from heaven to the human conscience and heart. Ritual alone, however exact, could not supply the need nor alter the inward condition of man's soul. John Bunyan's lovely term for our inner essential. Our interior self, the core of our being, requires cleansing and our conscience, so weighed down by our iniquities and impurities, needs to be quietened, purified, and put at ease by God's reassuring word of being right with him through absolute forgiveness. The first covenant has to pass into abeyance because of its mere temporary usefulness, though the principles that it enshrines at depth are eternally abiding. To the sinner, God is terrifyingly holy. Do you know how much God frightens men? They invent all sorts of reasons and excuses for denying his existence even. The great ones of the earth commit spiritual suicide by dulling the word of the conscience in their own minds as to the reality of God and their broken relationship with him. They cannot stand it. To the sinner, God is terrifyingly holy. 
a consuming fire to our diseased and quivering nature. Like Adam, we obey the inclination to hide from him and shut our ears to his verdict upon us and our fatal wickedness. We tremble in guilt before the Lord and he must come to us sharing the secrets of our possible deliverance from servitude to Satan, sin and self. We are bound to this threefold captivity and the shadow of our salvation projected in the first tabernacle must be replaced by the very substance of our redemption, Jesus Christ himself. Let us never be sidetracked from the main feature of the gospel. Jesus personally is our better tabernacle, our point of rendezvous with a smiling God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the second tabernacle, what we must call the heavenly tabernacle that provides a meeting with the living God and the solution to all our nagging spiritual and moral problems and inward strife. We perceive our inability to help ourselves through the law, now broken by us and in truth hated by us. Romans 8, can't think of the verse, but it's the first part of the chapter that few people quote. We're very selective in our use of Scripture. The accusations and allegations of the law affright us. And what can silence them? For these charges of the law are undeniably true. We see that above the law, but not in contradiction of the law, there is a mercy seat upon which God is enthroned and from which he radiates the glory of his majesty and the abundance of his mercy. We hold those two things together his majesty and his mercy. To that mercy we are invited and gain access through the Saviour's blood shedding on our behalf and in our stead, procuring for us eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. More than outwardly clean by mere ritual, we're now inwardly cleansed by prizing the blood of Jesus, our substitute, as wholly sufficient satisfaction for our myriad offences, each one of our misdemeanours. Our consciences are now relieved of any responsibility to futilely appease God by any useless means available in either creation or ourselves. We are rendered candid with God through confession and acknowledgement of guilt, and reconnected with him through the blood of Christ. We no longer pitch a tent of meeting because we are tied to Jesus, through whom we meet each person of the Trinity. The Father who commissioned him, the Spirit who upheld and strengthened him for his assignment, and of course the Son who ransomed us and rejoined, reattached us to God, all holy. The veil between us and Almighty God has been torn in two, and we pass through it to our adorable Lord and Heavenly Father. That's what happened at the crucifixion of the Savior. The veil, the temple curtain, 
was torn into. Access to the Father was provided. The purpose of this brief portion of Hebrews is to impress upon us the gravity of sin that so offends and disgusts our holy and righteous God. We inevitably take this great subject too lightly. However, if we ever viewed it in its stark actuality, we would pass into a state of foaming insanity. God knows the worst about us, is not shocked at our manifestation of sin's infestation of our souls, and spares us from such a woe as a total picture of ourselves would bring. We assess the seriousness of sin by the nature of its remedy, the suffering and killing of Jesus, his renunciation of his princely status to endure extreme humiliation on earth and the indescribable agony of the cross, entailing even the crushing abandonment of his stricken soul by God. It is all too vast for us to encompass within our understanding. The clue to the enormity of sin is found within the offerings of the first tabernacle. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself the blood of bulls and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance, the blood of goats. It does not appear that the term ignorance refers to sins of inadvertence only, but to all sin committed by us without exception, the which is attributable to our wickedly insensitive and neglectful unawareness of the honor, authority, and ways of God. It's because we're ignorant of him that we sin. We do not consider the mind of the Lord and are lawless before him and far distant from him. Our ignorance of him is the source of the evil we are by nature and happen to form by habit. We are stupefied by sin, blinded by it, and unaware of its horror and gravity, unappreciative of his blazing holiness. Such an insight reveals the vice-like grip that defilement and perversity has upon us and the almighty power that is necessary for our happy release. Our liberation is due to the strength of Christ, who succeeds through the power of the Spirit, by whom he offered himself unblemished to God to cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we might serve the living God. The author of the letter to those of Hebrew descent, I forgot to bring it, but that's the title of a lovely translation of the New Testament by a converted professor of Aristotle's philosophy to the faith of Jesus Christ, Heinz W. Kazerer. God's second covenant. If it's available, grab it if you can. That book, Hebrews, extols the efficacy of the blood of Christ. How much more then will the blood of Christ itself persuade us to completely confide in it, escape the thrall, captivity of death, to live in the knowledge and service of the living God? Let us consider the benefit of Messiah's blood. 
It grants us access to the mercy seat and to meeting after meeting with the Divine One Himself. We are invited to go cautiously and yet with confidence to God Himself. The privilege is overwhelming and unimaginable. Our little grey cells get caught in a cerebral traffic jam and collide with each other as we ponder these things. It is too much to fully contemplate. We are summoned to the throne every time the possibility or the need occurs to us. The shed blood on our behalf entitles us. The one who shed his blood alluringly calls us. If we stand on that trust, that reality, we cannot be refused access to the heavenly tabernacle from our base here on earth when we are in prayer and meditation or on our departure from earth in our eventual transition. The qualifying blood of Jesus cannot be refused. On what possible basis can we doubt the power and worth, the virtue guaranteed by the Spirit of the blood to save us and reserve us for God's possession of us? Why should we hesitate and stand on the fringe of Christ, the tabernacle of meeting? Three points at which I was going to extemporize. I won't because it's gone, gone noon. But all of us in a pastoral capacity, whether we are in the ministry of the word or believers of the word, enable us to discern that there are many people who are doubtful of their ultimate deliverance. Yes, I'm trusting Christ, but do I really? It's a lovely example ever so quickly. Can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he was speaking about the Passover and the doubts by Israelites as to whether the blood on the lintels of the door would actually save them from the angel of death. And there's a discussion between two Israelites. Yes, I know I'll be saved, the blood's on the lintel. And the other one's saying, yeah, the blood's on the lintel, but will I be preserved? And the angel passes over, and the man says, which one lost his eldest son? Neither of them. Because the protective blood had been applied. And I believe our assurance of salvation comes from our gazing at the cross and the heaven-sent impression upon us that Christ died in our stead and without anything from ourselves except trust and wrapped up in that trust is repentance. The two go together. But we only repent because of the faith. You see, it's the blood that saves us and not our interior feelings or moods or our temperament. We're trusting something objective, and that is the value of looking at Christ and his cross. I'm just going to read three lines quickly without comment. Like John the Revelator, and that's how the spirituals here refer to him, we shall hear his bidding from above. It's there as part of Revelation 4.1. John is called, come up here, come up here. Into the direct presence of God. And John Rabbi Duncan, have you heard of him, that great Scottish minister, when he was ministering the wine at a huge service in Edinburgh? In the service of communion, he was administering the cup. 
and as it went along the line passing the cup to each communicant, one lady took it, looked at it and passed it on. And so after one or two other people had received the cup, very decorously, John Duncan took it, brought it back to this lady and thrust it in front of her and said, take it, it's for sinners. The cup that represents the blood of Christ, it's for sinners. And for the worst of sinners. We should not remain in the outer limits in our knowledge of God, our great high priest. He yearningly invites us, meet with me. I'll take your advice, Mark. Can I just tell one more little anecdote? I'm sorry to deprive you of your dessert. (laughs) It's lovely. During the English Reformation, we all know what a horrid personality Henry VIII was. I won't enlarge upon it. A monster. And when he was dying and incapable of speech or giving any sign, the minister who was attending him took his hand and said, Your Majesty, are you trusting in the bloodshedding of Christ? Grip my hand, if you are. And Henry, as strongly as he could, gripped the hand of Thomas Cranmer. A rain or two on, Elizabeth herself is dying, and like her father, in her deathbed, does not have the power of speech. And so this time, John Whitgift takes her hand and says, Your Majesty, is your confidence in the bloodshedding of Christ? Press my hand if that is the case. And the Queen pressed his hand as hard as she could. What need I say? The bloodshedding. I think, at least at this point, it's the most important truth that we can declare to needy sinners, whether they be well or close to death. Trust the bloodshedding.